0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Greatest Games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Meller, Jonathan Wilson is with me and with us in the pod, it's Gary L. Smith, sports journalist reporting locally in Ghana and internationally, contributing to the BBC, CNN and the New York Times to name a few. Gary is also a UNICEF ambassador. Gary, pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Yeah, pleasure to be here. It's been normally people when I'm on football pods, they don't mention the UNICEF bit, Uh, But I guess today, I need that bit of, you know, thing on my byline because we are going to talk about a humanitarian mission. Indeed. Well,
0: I, I mean, I like to let people know as much as information as possible uh, and it makes you sound very important indeed. Well, Gary, today um, we, we're going to uh, the 5th of February 2015 to the Africa Cup of Nations semi-final between Ghana and Equatorial Guinea, which finished 3-0 to Ghana in, in what would be quite an explosive evening's entertainment, I suppose you could call it. Why have you chosen this game?
1: Well, I have chosen this game because it's probably the craziest football game I've ever been to in my in my uh, modest career. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I've seen things. It's not the first time I've been to a game that's been violent. Uh, I've seen a couple here in Ghana, especially where the the big clubs are concerned when they do like referee decisions. But this stands out because it was of a host nation of an Africa Cup of Nations that truly believed by this time, by the time this game came, that they were going to win the thing. They, mm-hmm. they utterly, totally believed that the stars were going to align, that, you know, the feminine men were going to be in place, the gods, whatever it is, were going to make them have this win. And so when they didn't, well, they didn't take kindly to it, to put it very mildly. And Jonathan, happened to be in Equatorial
0: Guinea for that one as well. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan, you were there. You had, you had quite the time at this uh, particular tournament. Um, <laughs> I, 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 where to begin, really? Well, um, I
2: mean, I think people, Yeah, you know, it's worth saying just what a strange place Equatorial Guinea is. And it, I, I've been twice now because they, they hosted in 2012, co-hosted in 2012 with Gabon. 2015, they stepped in at the last minute when Morocco pulled out I have to say, that we, I mean, we won't go into this because we haven't got time, but for very strange reasons. They said it was because of the Ebola outbreak. Um, but of the three countries that had Ebola, uh, only Guinea had qualified. And it would have been very easy to test their squad. And you know, Guinea had been playing games because they couldn't play in, in Conakry. They'd been playing games in Casablanca in Morocco. Mm-hmm. So why the Moroccan government suddenly decided they couldn't couldn't hold the tournament, I've no idea. Um, Ecuador Guinea stepped in. Um, and very very strange things ensued. So they they they've uh, had had a dictator, Te, um, uh, Teodor, Nguema, Te, well, Teodor Obiang and uh, who seized power from his uncle in 1978. Uh, and Equatorial Guinea is by capita by you know, GDP per capita is one of the wealthiest nations on earth. I think it's like seventh in the overall list. That's incredible when you think. And it, about... it well, it, it's it's sickening. It's absolutely despicable. It's, yeah. it's got an incredible amount of oil, um, but it's all owned by the the Nguema family, and so there's intense poverty, right. and and a, you know a really brutal and repressive uh, secret police, um, I, and just you know, the, the the excess of the of the ruling family is, is extraordinary. So the son of the president, to, who lives in Paris, you know, he, he just bought some, some cars to you know bentleys and things just to put outside his apartments just to look nice. He took some French journalists out and bought thirty seats in an afternoon just to show how rich he was. Uh I went just during this tournament, uh, I went looking for a, a monkey reserve, monkey sanctuary that I never found. But while we were driving about in the interior round Mount Cameroon, which is on the centre of Bioko the island, as Equatorial Guinea saw split into there's the island bit Bioko and then the mainland. Um uh, which is very small. Um, and we sort of we, we, we came upon sort of the presidential palace, which is enormous, just in the middle of nowhere. So it's a very 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 odd country, and I think the level of repression um, makes what happened in this game even more extraordinary. Than it would have been anyway. Mm.
1: Yeah. So I mean, my my with that fantastic backdrop, I mean, <laughs> just imagine the, the, the sort of atmosphere you have the host nation at this stage in the competition, knowing that they were just this close to a famous African Cup of Nations final. They had lobbied hard, just like many other dictatorships across the world and in history have used sports or what we call in this millennial age, sports washing, you know, to make their country look good, give themselves some good press. And they are managed by some good luck, you know, a confluence of factors. To get this fine into the competition, it must be said. Um, they were playing some good football, they had some what do you call it? Um, they were playing attacking football, Jonathan. If, I, if I'm not wrong, um, occasionally they did have some luck, you know, every <laughs> decision going their way. Okay, <laughs> that, that, let's let's talk
2: about this very specifically so that they. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they they finished second in their group, so they they were playing in their group. They were based in Bata. Now Bata is um is the biggest city, but it's not the capital. The capital is Malabo, which is on the island. Bata is the biggest city. It's, it's on the on the mainland. Um, and there was a little little sign of what was to come before the second group game, when I remember getting there, uh, would have been two or three hours because they they played double headers. So it would have been two or three hours before the first game. And there was already a big press of of Equatorial Guinea fans, and police were trying to sort of the, the the two stadiums, the two big stadiums, one in Malabo and the one in in Bata, were both very similar. The one in Bata was a bit bigger, but they were both in their own complexes with loads of other sort of sporting arenas. So one in in Malabo had a huge Olympic sized swimming pool, which people might remember Eric Leel, the Eel, the swimmer from the Olympics, He sort of yeah. gained this sort of notoriety, and that was where he trained. So these huge sporting complexes, they each had a hotel in them. Um, and because I'd been there in 2012, I realised this hotel was the place to stay because you're right on site. takes away a load of the hassle uh, in, in Um, But what it means is there's only one point of ingress. And so you've got huge build-ups. On the odd occasion, you've got big crowds. There's, you've got huge build-ups of those gates. So the second group game, there was a load of problems outside the ground. Um, and when I got there, the police were sort of holding people back and, and they had batons raised. This is sort of five, six hours before that game kicked off. Uh, when I came out afterwards, the gate had been ripped off the off the gateposts. Uh, so that was a little sign that things were a little bit more... Um, people were not quite as repressed as they had been three years earlier, put it that way. There was not quite the level of control. But they get they through the group in second place, uh, won one game and drew two. And that meant that I think they should have been playing their quarterfinal in Ebebien. Now, Ebebien's tiny. Um, and they hadn't used that in 2012. And they hadn't used Montgomery in 2012. Now, Montgomery's where, where Ghana played their group. They they lost Senegal in their first game. They went through winning the two games after that. Um, and the pitches in those two stadiums were terrible because they'd been laid sort of five or six weeks before the tournament. So you couldn't play football on them. And then they decided that you couldn't have Equatorial Guinea playing in Aberdeen, because the stadium's too small. So they decided to move all the quarterfinals to Malabo and, and Bata. So this is all done at the last minute. So they had this game as Tunisia, this quarterfinal in Bata. And Tunisia, that Tunisia team, were a horrible team. <laughs> they were physical, they were cynical, they were the kings of shithousery. And the thing is, they were quite a good football team. They could have just played football. So the first half of this game, Tunisia committed 19 fouls, Equatorial Guineas 4. So you can see how they're playing. Second half, Tunisia, 20 minutes to go, they get the goal, they won the look, and you sort of think, well, this is done. And Tunisia are the kings of, of killing time. And you sort of, they're wasting time, they're feigning injury, they're in the referee's face. There's this magnificent, I well, no, let's let's deal with the penalty first. So in, in injury time, <laughs> um, there is a complete nonsense of a penalty given. Oh, Ivan Bolado the Ecuador-Guinea player, has the ball. Sort of, he's going towards the goal line. He's way to the left of goal. He is inside the box, and it's uh, Mapluti. Sort of, he's near him. A little bit of jockeying, and down he goes. And the referee, um, (laughs) Regina Passad Seichen, gives the penalty. And I remember in the press box. And it's very rare this happens, that you get a universality of response. I remember you know, when, when when Germany got the fifth against Brazil in 2014, and I remember everybody in the press box had the same expression on their faces, open now looking around. And this was similar. Everybody simultaneously burst out laughing. It yeah. was a penalty that was so bad. The decision was so awful. It was just funny. And there uh, was all kinds of conspiracy theories that Equatorial Guinea had been told you would get to at least the semi-final or you will get to the final or whatever. I actually think what happened was Sey had just gone I'm so sick of these Tunisians I'm just just going to give it oh oh it was very much when when he went down you you could
0: almost hear the referee go thank you very much
2: (laughs) you know he he got suspended for it afterwards well he he did
0: he did he did
1: he did he did did. so Hmm. um, again like I said they played some attacking football and they had some help from the referees as well but Jonathan You have forgotten the tiny detail about the outrageous prices and uh, rewards that the players were being given. I mean, the president was promising them anything from $100,000 a match
3: per player, you know, to win and and all that. I mean, that is how badly they wanted
1: it. Mm. So with this background, we all knew that it was going to be a difficult game for even journalists. And because it was a state's repressive regime and all that, You can pick the feelers out that, you know, this is not a place to joke. You don't joke with the police and stuff like that. Now,
3: my hotel was about a um, 20 minute walk, 15 minute walk
1: from, from the stadium. And also to give a bit of context as to how bizarre this country was. They had highways with paved roads like Norway or Sweden, you know, quality. Like really, really good huge um edifices, you know, marking this anniversary or this anniversary on the main roads. Then you take a detour right into the town and the contrast could not be
2: starker. You well Montgomery, Mongomo where, where Ghana were was the because Mongomo is, is the sort of a hometown of of Gremer uh, family, yeah. yeah. And so Mongomo it's it's I mean it's basically a a village. And it's, it's a village, yeah. It's very, very poor, except it's got this huge Italian style clock tower in the middle. It's got a five-star hotel on the edge of town, which I stayed in in 2012, because I went by road from Bata to Get to liberville And so I went through Mongomo, which wasn't even Sage and Game Center. It was one of those places I went through, thinking, well, I'll never come back here. Three years later, there I am. And um, they had this—they built this basilica, because they wanted to get the Pope to come and visit. So this huge basilica, 8,000 capacity basilica on the hill outside Mongomo, which is just a, a little village in the middle of a forest. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a ridiculous place. A huge yeah. library as well. they had a, a which I think the Americans had funded this enormous library in Montgomery.
1: Yeah. So so yeah, I, I hope that I mean everybody gets a picture of how grotesque. I think that's the correct word. grotesque is the word. Yeah. yeah. Yes. A, anyway, the
2: game is Tunisia. They, they they score the penalty. The player who scores it is um, Javier Balboa. Balboa.
1: Uh, Balboa, yeah. Balboa Rocky, Rocky! Yeah. <laughs> he
2: was. Can I just Can I just say, Jonathan,
0: though, that that when the penalty is given. The Equatorial Guinea players celebrate as if they've just scored. Yeah. Like and, and that it, it's almost as if to say, ah oh, yes, yeah, the the, the, the system works, <laughs> kind of thing, you know? <laughs> we'll be okay, lads. Don't ba- worry Balboa about it. Balboa is
2: by a million miles their best player. Um yeah. they had a couple of decent players and um Nsue played for Middlesbrough. Yeah, and Sue played for Middlesbrough in Birmingham. But uh, oh, Balboa, point. you know, he uh he'd been born in Madrid, he'd come up through the Real Madrid youth system, he played seven games for Real Madrid. He played a handful of games for Benfica. I think it was Estoril by this point. But he was a proper footballer. And Sue was you know, a slightly lower tier, or slightly less skillful player, but I, I guess an equally useful player. They were the two best players by far. Um, and then he scores, in extra time, he scores a brilliant, brilliant free kick uh, to beat Tunisia. But the, the, this game, the celebrations afterwards, are, are like nothing I've ever seen before. So the next morning, we go to the airport in Bata to go to Malabo. The, the quarterfinals there and everybody is drunk literally everybody, our taxi driver was drunk everybody <laughs> at the airport was drunk, security at the airport was drunk and we went to check in and Taymor a uh, friend of mine, a photographer uh, who was working for Genafrique so yeah, yeah. Yeah. and he, he, he had his, his boarding pass on his on his phone and he hands it over to the guy behind the desk who is is pissed and he inadvertently presses archive and because there's no Wi-Fi in the airport, you can't get it out of the archive. So, Tamo's stuck. You can't you can't get on the plane. So, I was with Nick Ames from The Guardian, a couple of other people, and we went to the cafe. And who should be in the cafe but Lauren Poku, who for a long time was the top... Ivorian forward for a long time had been the top scorer in Copa Nation's history. Then Samuel Eto'o took his record. So, we're sitting there having this <laughs> nice chat with Lauren Poku doing this interview. And He's you know, he, he since died, uh, Poku. Um, and, you know, great. Privileged to meet him And we we saw to half an hour later. We think Oh now Tamar's getting on And we go back Tamar's in the seat Like where the Woman checking him in Should have been And he's doing it himself Because everybody else Is too drunk To manage the computers <laughs> Oh
3: my goodness I mean the whole The
2: whole thing is, So it's that, I mean On the one hand It was very touching That they were so excited About it, And really their first Ever sporting achievement Certainly in mm-hmm. football But on the other hand It did create This dangerous expectation
0: Mm-hmm Indeed, yeah. Well, well. let's talk a little bit more about that um, after a quick break, gentlemen. Back in a moment. Welcome back to The Greatest Games on uh, the Blizzard. Now, Gary, we've talked a lot about Equatorial Guinea and, yeah, uh, and the but situation but it's, it's
1: important to set that, yes. that backdrop because what happens in there, you know, you immediately understand. Because, of course. like I said, my hotel is 15 minutes away. So I set off early, about three, four hours before the game. I walk, um, get close to the hotel. Then I see a police presence there. And I remember something somebody had told me. Always go along with your passports. Carry it always. Mm -hmm. Then, instinctively, I just check my backpack and my passport is not there. Mm -hmm. In a dictatorship, a repressive country... Where a policeman can grab you and say, where are your documents, if you don't have it, he's beating you instantly, like no questions asked. Mm-hmm. So then, the decision about, because I see people running, and like Jonathan has said, I mean, it's a huge game. Everybody wants to see the players. And so the even three hours to kick off, the place is filling up really quickly. I make a quick mental calculation. Do I go to the stadium without my passport, or do I go back to the hotel and get it? come back and risk joining a longer queue. Common sense takes over at this point, and I just decided to risk it, because I'll leave it at the gate anyway, because I figured that if I show up at the gate and I have my passport and my tag, they're going to let me in faster, right? So I go back to the hotel, and um, I'm told that the woman who is cleaning my room, because I have left like 15 minutes before, the woman who is cleaning my room says, I can't come in until she's done. I mean, this is my room. <laughs> this is my room. <laughs> so I, I wait a while, she's done. And then I go in there and pick my passport and come back. So when I come back, I meet this humongous crowd. I mean, long story short, pushing, shoving um, the few words of Spanish because, you know, they speak Spanish. And mm-hmm. yeah, that I can master then I get into the data as well. So that's one level of stress already done. Then, you know, everything else, the internet is half working. Typical African Cup of Nations fair. You know, you're looking like, uh, you're looking for the password, you can't find it. Uh, You have to use your phone, Wi-Fi as a hotspot. And this is, I mean, not 2020. This is Uh Equatorial Guinea. I mean, Wi-Fi hotspots don't just work, you know, because the internet, Jonathan, I remember the internet was crazy expensive, like crazy expensive. And they are putting Uh on Cell phone
0: network, which of course belongs to the I mean family as well. So yeah, <laughs> you can imagine. Oh, so, so so it's an all deal certainly for for the journalist. <laughs> I my goodness. So I mean, what I'd like to ask you, actually, Gary. Um, as loathed as I am to go away from the kind of the, the, the kind of the experiences of getting to the ground and the political climate and all that kind of stuff was we haven't actually mentioned Ghana, the football team themselves managed of course by Avram Grant. There was a number of players that, that, that fans of the premier league will be familiar with. You had Andre and Jordan Ayo in there, Daniel Amati in there, young young player, Christian Atsu, of course had a great tournament as well. You know, and they had players who were, were playing in some of the top leagues. But Asamoah O'Jana though, he
2: missed this game. Uh, yeah. He got injured against Guinea in the in the final. Yeah, so so a very talented Ghana side, and so
0: surely you must have been thinking, okay, Equatorial Guinea, you know, you've had your fun, but <laughs> I mean, the, the 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 kind of decisions we'll see in this game for them to beat Ghana would be particularly outrageous. Yes. So you you must have been fairly confident that Ghana were going to win this game.
1: Yes, especially because of the experience. I mean. Uh, remember that Harrison Affle had been in the team since at least 2010 because, you know, he he had come in to sort out Ghana's long left-back problem. John Boy, who now plays, you know, in France, was also quite good. Um, He had been a regular. He had been a pariah also because of his infamous... uh, You know when Ghana had the airplane flown to Brazil for the World Cup because they were demanding bonuses and whatnot? he was the symbol of that movement because he was the one caught on camera actually kissing the watch of dollars. <laughs>
0: That's right. I remember. Yes. I
1: remember. So that. he, he, he <laughs> became the symbol of that that catastrophe for Ghana. Um, they had Jonathan Mensah, who was sort of in his prime. Um, among the Premier League players, he also had Baba Raman, who is still a Chelsea player but never gets a game because he's part of the Uh, long list of Chelsea Loneese, then Mubarakwakasso, Mifriye Akwa, Cristina, Jordan Ayu, Andre Ayu. At this time, Jordan was a hugely divisive figure in Ghana because he was not as consistent as he is now. You know, his talent was there, his potential was there, but people didn't really trust him. But in the absence of Asamuajan, there weren't a lot of options. You know, so that was Ghana's team and then uh, the Guinea also had um, Okono, who was a reliable goalkeeper, one of their better players, um, in Ibele, uh, they had Rui, a guy called Kike, which was his nickname, Ivan, Edlong Balboa, uh, Ivan Ndu, and then Emiliano Yusui. So, close to what was their best team as well, and that is how they, 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 they lined up. But mm-hmm.
3: the context, I
1: remember the match, three-match previews was about how Equatorial Guinea, and especially the state-run media, so they roused the people up, you know, just to get them emotionally charged, which is why later you see these scenes. Equatorial Guinea we we're, were around 118th in the world, you know, and Ghana was. I mean, Ghana, we were always doing well and all that. So um, this was the background to it. I mean, the second Africa Cup of Nations semi-final, the first one had been played, and so we were expecting that we were going to be in the final, and then kick off, kick off happened. Ghana <laughs> were red hot favourites. Um, yeah. yeah, but Equatorial Guinea really failed. It was just as the journalists who in our minds knew that, I mean, come on, we're not going
3: to this. But of course, we couldn't see that.
0: Yeah. Jonathan, what were your experiences of going to the ground and, and soaking up the atmosphere? Did you think that there was, there was trouble brewing? I mean, you mentioned that earlier on in the tournament that you felt that there were tensions.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, it was only in retrospect, I sort of. Um, Saw any significance in what happened early in the tournament? I just sort of thought it would have been bad management. There's been a bit of a crush developed, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, there was one story which disturbed me, which is an Al Jazeera journalist said he'd, he'd seen a, a fan with a gun, but I, I didn't know. I didn't didn't entirely believe him to be honest. Um,
1: <laughs> Tell this the, was a was possible Yeah, I mean, anything was yeah. possible. <laughs> yeah,
2: but so the, the, the um, Cote d'Ivoire had, had beaten um, Guinea. Uh, sorry, not Guinea, uh, uh, DR Congo the day before. Mm -hmm. in in batter so uh nick ames and i were both there from the guardian so we just tossed a coin for who who covered which game we were both going to both games but who actually wrote the report and the way it fell i did the first semi which was a mistake as it turns out well for me yeah great for nick and so i I was just here doing uh doing blizzard work um so we must have flown in the morning of the game but i was still I, I, i still had my room in the hotel which was you know 150 yards from the ground it was within the same complex so getting to the ground was was very easy for me but and I'm sure Gary will remember this the press box was tiny like it was two rows of seats I guess maybe 50 seats total maybe 60 pushing it and then there was the radio cabins so we'd managed to early in the tournament we'd commandeered one of the radio cabins um, for for basically I I mean Brian Oliver the the legendary former sports editor of the Observer who did loads of cups of nations. This was his first one back after a while away. And I don't know if you remember Gary, there was that very fierce Nigerian press officer. Yeah. Uh <laughs> I, I can't remember her name, who 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 ran things there. But Brian charmed her in the first week. It was the most magical thing to watch this sort of <laughs> late fifties red faced British man charming this this kind of absolutely ferocious Nigerian press officer. And every press conference followed exactly the same pattern where Brian would be sat in the middle of the front row. And she would go, right, first question. And she'd pretend to be looking around the room. Brian. Every single press conference, Brian, Brian got the first question. And somehow he persuaded her to let let the, the British press have this cabin, which meant that when the Algerians were there, and the Algerian press was loads of them and they were quite aggressive, there was never any fight. We just got the cabin to ourselves. The problem was Brian always took a tin of sardines for every game. So the thing just stank said is because you got to remember it's like thirty-five degrees. Is he marking his territory or something? But, but what we, what we realized was there was um there was a pizza restaurant uh, just outside the, the just over the road from the stadium complex, so we could ring them and get them to deliver pizzas to the cavern. So they'd have to kind of come through all these crowds of people and through all the security, but you know they they got through. So we could get there several hours for kick off. And get them to deliver pizza sort of half an hour before the game started, and that was. But we, for some reason, the semi-final we couldn't do that. So Nick and I were, were sat outside because we got there early. We were middle of the front row, which turned out to be a mixed blessing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well,
2: it sounds all right, Jonathan. Doesn't it so, get pizza delivered as? <laughs>
0: so, so, so. <laughs> falls on So, so basically,
1: I mean, for us journalists, yes, but to the game, right? The game starts. National anthems. Um, With all the background, you would understand why the people would belt out their national anthem in open anticipation. So the game starts. Ghana are surprisingly, for favorites, disjointed. Like, nothing is working. Passes are going this way, that way. Equatorial Guinea seem quite, you know, bored or whatever it is. But then, two decisions start riling up their fans. Because while Ghana is not playing well and so on and so forth, um, by the thirty-fourth, thirtieth minute, the anyway, having you know one or two chances, they were not converting. The crowd were whooping and hollering and all that. The ref gives a decision that they are not happy about. I think it was the goalkeeper who had you know sort of come out and and, and, and clattered you know cleared the ball because he was feeling all very. Heroic, you know, like a keeper sweeper, and the ref gave a foul in favor of Ghana, you know, so they were not happy about that at first. And then, I think on the 35th minute, Ghana had a penalty. Did um, Ovono charge off his line again when the ball was coming? And then, Kwesi Apia, the Ghana striker, is fouled. Now, quick anecdote about Kwesi he was. Abraham Grant had just called this guy who was in League 2, by the way, and he was Mm -hmm. playing in the Ghana national team. Now, here in Ghana, because of how proud we are of our football heritage, it is almost heretical that a player from the third tier of any country in the world should be in the national team. I mean, Mm -hmm. people believe that national team is that good that... It should be only Premier League level players in any country. Yeah.
0: He was a real journeyman in England as well. I mean, he played to so many different clubs in the lower leagues. But he, he was in he Cambridge is. at this point.
1: He was yeah. in Cambridge at this point. So he was like, but people had liked him because he was a cool guy. He was, you know, he never liked him in trouble and he was enterprising. He was not, definitely not world class, but he did the simple things. Anyway, you could clearly see he followed instruction. So he charges onto a ball, the keeper, comes out to try and tackle it, he mistimes it, Jordan Ayew steps up, and even at this time, everybody knows when Jordan steps up, to, like, for a penalty, he never misses. And Jordan, by the way, still has never missed a penalty for the Black fans, for the Ghana national team. He's that good at it. So when he steps up, I mean, everybody knows he's going to score and he scores. Um, now, in the immediate aftermath of the goal, Marcus, here's the interesting thing. The Ghana players are celebrating and I remember the journalists screaming at the Ghana players, get back, get back. So inadvertently, inadvertently, they alert the Equatoginean Guinean players that, oh, shoot, these guys are not ready. They put the ball in the center line and pass quickly. Then the ref calls them back. Yeah. I mean, this ref has balls. Because to do that against a host nation, you know what I mean? So the ref calls them back and the players
0: are absolutely livid. Yeah. But that's what I mean, Gary. That's what we were saying at the start when we were saying about this, that Garner was such favourites. You thought to yourself, what kind of decisions is the referee <laughs> going to have to make? And if had he not pulled them up for that? No, but he had to. I
2: mean, it was the right decision because half a go a team was, yeah. was still in, no, in I know, the wrong half. I know, Jonathan,
0: but in, the, but in the context, in the in in, the, in this sort of... Um, you know the the, the you know the heat of the action. I suppose you know he may well yeah.
2: have bottled it. Yeah, I mean, just the, the, the first the first sense I had that the crowd something might be brewing was a little bit before the goal when uh, Ivan Edu, who was the centre forward, who was very much sort of the like the playboy of a team, he, he, he was very popular, and he dispossessed uh, Mubarak Guacaso, and it was right in front of the linesman. The Lions didn't give anything. And the referee, Eric Togel from Gabon, gives a free kick. Now, I, I, I honestly don't know if it was a foul or not. It's interesting the linesman didn't give it. And the Equatorial Guinea players react very badly to that. There's four or five of them converge on Atogo, at And there's a couple of bottles thrown. And when I say bottles, yeah, everybody in Equatorial Guinea, because it's so hot and humid, they carry around these two-litre plastic bottles. So, it, yeah, they're, they're bottles. Realistically, they're not going to do that much damage. I mean, yeah, obviously it's not a good thing to be hit by a two-litre water bottle full of water, but it's not a glass bottle. Um, so there's a couple of those thrown. I like, oh, that's a bit. Didn't expect that. But then when this, this is called back, as they try and take the quick kickoff, suddenly there's dozens of these being thrown, and they mainly being thrown at the Garner players. So we're still celebrating down in the corner. Yeah. So there's a way to our left, as we were in the press box. So the, the there's the main stand opposite us, or, or sorry, but I guess we were in the main stand and there's a big stand opposite us. The ends are sort of, there's a running track so they're quite a long way long away from the pitch. The Ghana fans of whom I'm guessing were four or 500
1: maybe? Does that sound about right to you guys? Yeah, yeah. Yes, because the Stades still, the are floating fans. <laughs> yeah, so,
2: so they were in the corner of, of that stand away to the left. Sort of, and So, so you know, they were over there, but at this stage the bottles all being thrown at the Ghana players and just generally under the pitch. Everything calms down and then Ghana, Go and score again. <laughs> um, yeah, So, in injury time, the end of the first half, and it, it, it's Atsu, who was by far Ghana's best player in that tournament, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah he, 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 you know, he, he, it's actually an Ecuador Guinea corner, uh, really good break. He drives forward and he squares it for uh, Wakaso to score. At which there are hundreds of these water bottles being thrown. And the yeah. only way the Ghana players can get off the pitch at half time. They yeah, gather in the centre circle to get as far away from the sta from the stands as possible. And the only way they can get off is riot police putting their shields up in the you know, the the, the old testudo thing from the Roman army and kind of having the shields above their heads. Yeah. And that's how they get off at, at half time. And so suddenly this this very repressed yeah, you know, nation
3: Yeah it's as if
2: they sense hang on, the police can't actually stop us if we all throw bottles at the same time. Yeah. And it was a very, very strange atmosphere because I I when I was sort of thinking how would not even get back on the pitch at the start of the second half. I I I don't see how this game goes on. Mm. Yeah, Gary, how did Ghana do, when they got in a half time
0: know, the 2-0 up and obviously it's a very, very tasty environment, shall we say? What what was their reaction, you know? How did they deal with the situation?
1: They were really calm and I'll, and because we've explained so much, this is where Ghana actually win the game. Mm. The more riled up
3: the host nation gets the calmer Ghana become, because mainly of Avram Grant. Now, Avram Grant was brought in to be what, let's say, Carlo Ancelotti is brought into teams to do. Mm -hmm. When there's a heated atmosphere, you can trust Don Carlo to come in. Okay, simmer down, simmer down, simmer down. Exactly. That's why he
1: was brought in. Ghana had come from the debacle of the World Cup, you know, Uh, money being flown to Brazil, everybody hated the national team here in Ghana. They were at an all-time low in terms of support. You know, they had been on TV before the tournament, begging the country, people in the country, um, to forgive them, that sort of thing. Now, Grant basically, we are told later, he calmed them in the dressing room and told them, guys, we've got this. Play the ball, ball around, don't do much, and just keep going at it. So they are calm, I mean, and they can sense that the got is in the back. At this point, their concern is for their safety. So that's how the second half begins.
2: So that I means even to get on the pitch, they yeah. have to have a riot police, you know, so you got the tunnel and the riot police then kind of make the tunnel longer with their shields. And what I thought was really impressive was Avon Grant walked out first. Yeah. He led them out yeah. and he doesn't doesn't look at anybody. He just walks straight ahead and there's bottles landing all around him. And he just walks through it. And I sort of thought, you know, Avon Grant's got quite a mixed um, uh, reputation in Britain. But that was genuinely heroic and genuinely brilliant leadership.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, he was his leadership
0: can be quite hands-off. He was criticised, wasn't he, uh, when he was a manager for being a little bit too hands-off. But there, I don't want to say hands-on approach, but he certainly, as you say, Jonathan, showed leadership qualities.
1: Every every Ghana player you speak to about Abraham Grant will tell you that this criticism about being hands-off was only because he never stayed in Ghana. He preferred to coach the team from abroad. Now, we only saw him in Ghana on Sky Sports because they invited him into the studio. He'll be talking about the Premier League. <laughs> Chelsea, boss. So it always riles people up that this guy should be here watching the local league. You know what I mean? Scouting for players? Yeah. But when he came, the players all loved him because... He knew how to, I mean, as a man-manager, he was fantastic. One of the best we've had in recent years. So, I mean, the second half um, continued in the same vein and we basically knew that the game was done and dusted. Andrea, you um, scored on 73 minutes, by which time things were actually going to <laughs> you know. And then just, just around, around that time that we started really feeling that, you know what, hang on, something bad is going to happen.
0: Yeah, I do, do. You know what was interesting is that the way Ghana celebrated that third goal, where they're all sort of dancing around, I, do, I don't blame them for one second. You know, because because you know it's they, essentially sealed their place in a final, and they've taken a lot from the from the Ho fans. But I did think it was this,
2: what would be the word?
0: I suppose a, a, a slightly ballsy celebration uh, with bottles flying around and they were all dancing.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean, Marcus, but. The second half, once it began, was actually relatively calm. It sort of felt mm-hmm. like the the you know the, the storm had been weathered. But then, when that third goal goes in and it's you know definitely game over, suddenly everything gets a lot lot worse very very quickly. And so the bottles are being thrown. Aren't just the plastic bottles. There's also glass beer bottles. You know, I, I walked around the pitch afterwards and there was there was plates. There was I found a bit of a mirror. Um cool. you proper missiles, and they began to be directed at the ghana fans and that was much much more dangerous because you know they were just there whereas at least the players mm-hmm. you had the running track they could go in the middle of the pitch, whereas you know, those Ghana fans were totally you know defenseless, so they initially they retreated to the back of the stand, which meant that they couldn't be got out from the from a long stand opposite us, which I think was the west stand uh but the the fans in that end the the south stand could still throw things at them. And then the police led the garner fans down onto the track. Now there were all kinds of stories that came out that they they forced the gate or something now that was not what I saw and again, when I looked at the gates at the front, they hadn't been forced you know they they it was a it was a it was a bolt but it was a magnetic bolt that could be released remotely so either somebody in same security had released it or the the police had had pulled it back and so they were they were on the track the police were around them protecting them and eventually took them out of the stadium. Um, they then clear uh, the the stand we were in, so there's loads of um, loads of fans go along the sort of the the passageway in front of the press box. And Nick, who was next to me, um, he's he was sort of packing up his stuff because obviously we realise this is you know get your laptop, get get everything out of the way. And it, he his his laptop charger falls down into the passageway in front, at which one of these guys who's kind of being heard at the stadium by these angry riot police. Sort of picks up and kind of gives it back to him. It was the most sort of <laughs> remarkable, sort of gentlemanly, kindly act. Um, but as, as Nick sort of flapping, it's sort of his, his, the lead kind of goes across and swings right in front of my nose and back again. And CAF, by this point, have turned off the cameras. So there's no official footage of any of this. But there was a South African journalist from AP who was filming it on his iPhone from the back of the box and he sold it around the world the next day. So the next morning, I'm in the hotel, watching, and it had France Van Cat on the TV, a French news channel. And suddenly I see myself sitting down, <laughs> tapping at my laptop, looking up at Nick as he's kind of panicking, flapping, putting everything away. This cable going across the front of my face, and you can very, very clearly literally me going, Oh, for fuck's sake, Nick, sit down. <laughs> and this is repeated. Every fifteen minutes, all day, just me going. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, Nick! Sit down. <laughs>
0: well, um, I remember. I remember seeing the pictures back home, John, and thinking, "There you are." It's so those bloody English causing trouble abroad
2: again, you know. And then, and then they they bring in a helicopter, and the the helicopter, the, you know, they they lower it right down over the stand to I don't know, like thirty feet above the stand. So, I mean, really, really close. So there's, there's like this wind, and what I remember is uh, Orange, who were the sponsors of the tournament. They'd handed out all these sort of inflatable hands and the, the clappy stick things. And they were flying everywhere. And there was bits of paper flying everywhere. This huge storm of these orange inflatables as these fans are being driven out. And then they, eventually they drop uh, smoke grenades to kind of to clear it fully. Um, but I also remember Temor, you who know, we spoke about having his problems at the airport. He was down Pitchside because he was taking photographs. And Pepsi one of the other sponsors of the tournament. And there was these inflatable Pepsi cans in the corners. And he was sort of cowering behind one of them as these missiles are sort of raining. And he can't move because as soon as he moves from behind this Pepsi can, he's going to be in range of the missiles. So it was, it was really kind of, you know, in the press box, he felt slightly ins- insulated from it. But I could see, you know, Taymor was in big trouble. I could see these Ghana fans in big trouble. Okay. And the, the most moving thing I saw afterwards was a, was a ball boy who was, I don't know, like eight or nine years old, like just shaking and in tears, oh, absolutely yeah. terrified by what had happened. And they, the Ghana fans were taken out of the stadium and in this sort of complex, they sort of put them on a roundabout in the complex, on this big, grassy roundabout, and sort of they, they created a ring around them, which I guess temporarily kept them safe, but it was, you know, it really was very, very unpleasant. Yeah, I mean,
0: have you spoken to any of, uh, of the fans, Gary, that were in the in the Ghana end? Or, or if you haven't, you know, how was it reported on all this in Ghana?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it was going to be reported only one way course. <laughs> Underdog, you know, we are being repressed by a nation of unsportsmanlike people, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, so like Jonathan said, the fans themselves were being attacked. That's the kind of fans were being attacked by the Guinea mm-hmm. fans. So they had to set the, the stats and get onto the pitch. So the fans were now sort of with the Ghana kind of players, right? And the police personnel in the stadium were totally they did not know how to do. It. But then at a the point, we saw a group of police who seemed very organised and they knew exactly what to do. It didn't occur to us, but later we would learn. But those were special forces flowed from Angola. Uh-huh. Now Angola was also or is still a repressive regime. So I, I imagine. Um, the president in Guema of Equatorial Guinea just called Santos in Angola and I said, Yo, Los Santos, but yo, I need a couple of guys to uh, <laughs> restore some law and order. Everything is you know, here. So, can you help me? I said, Yeah, yeah, I can send all my best friends, guys. guys. Uh, let's let's see what we can do. So, the Angolans were the ones who Equatorial Guinean police officers were completely out of their depth, you know, about everything that was happening. So, um, at this time, Jonathan, I remember also, I mean, in all the. The Equatorial the Guinean the, 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 the Minister of Sports had gone into the press box or wherever the loudspeaker in the stadium had appealed for calm a couple of times. Nobody had minded it. Well, I, I, and the Equatorial Game players,
2: so to be fair to them, they were appealing for calm. and they had been at half time. So, I mean, they, the players themselves, yeah. no blame on them.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, now. There's an important point that probably annoyed the people before the match as well because it had dominated local press. Marcus, the referee for this game was from Gabon. Now think of an England semi-final World Cup game where the ref is from Scotland, Ireland. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah. I wouldn't be too too pleased to be honest with you, Gary, if that was the case.
3: So th- there was that also. But what yeah. what
2: I thought he did really well was when he brings the players back, so there's been like a 40-minute stoppage, he brings them back. we still sort of 15 minutes of injury time to play. And that takes maybe five minutes maximum. Mm-hmm. It's just, bang, get it done. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Nick was writing the piece yeah. of the Guardian. So, Sorry, go, go on, Gary. They, 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 they
3: also had another conspiracy. Now, Equatorial Guinea had beaten Gabon 2-0 in the group stage. So I'm not sure which genius decided to give this ref the game, you know, because there were so many extremist factors that were screaming "Don't do this" mm-hmm. because of regional rivalry. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the factors that I had spoken about as well. So yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, that was it. Yeah. So so I, it? because it's Nick was detail. yeah because because Nick was doing the report, I, I went to the press conference, um, yeah, to 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 get yeah you know, quotes on you know, of, you know, what players experienced and then I you know, I was done I had no more immediate work so I then took on the absolutely vital role of going back to the hotel and saying to them please 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 keep the bar open because there's going to be a lot of journalists They like, really want a beer and don't shut it at 10:30 whatever time you normally shut it. so I don't know if you remember Gary but we all we all gathered outside the hotel that night and at that bar on the on the terrace but, uh, and we and yeah, cause, because everybody was sort of Really, you know, the, the huge adrenaline rush. High,
3: high,
2: high, Everybody wanted a few beers just to calm down, and that was the night when Nick Cavell from the BBC, he he, they he left with uh, another guy from the BBC, uh, Matthew Kenyon, maybe I can't remember who it was. One of the other BBC guys. They leave. I don't know, like midnight, one AM, something like that. And the next thing we know, and this is incredible, I can't believe we didn't didn't notice this, the next thing we know is we see pictures of him on Twitter with his foot, you know, his ankle completely in a plaster. And there was between, like, you know, you had the hotel and it went up the road and it was a stadium and you turned left and there, there was like the swimming pool and there some tennis courts and there was these big drainage ditches by the by the tennis courts. And Nick had just fallen on these drainage ditches and smashed his ankle. So he, he missed the final at the cover of oh, his hotel it. room. And, and it, was, it couldn't have been more than 100 yards from us. Well, we didn't hear him at all. So that, that was the end of a very, very strange night poor Nick doing yeah. his ankle.
0: Yeah, the real victim of it. <laughs>
3: so Nick, here's yeah, the story. I had walked I was working also with Nick and Matthew Kenyon it was. Because they had the detail to cover. Um Steve Crossman.
2: Yeah, that's right, it was. It was Steve, Steve yeah, you're Crossman. right. Yeah, it was.
3: Steve Crossman who's now in five eyes. Yeah. Yes. You'll see, Crossman was, had just started out at the beginning. This was his first major tournament or something. So, um, we are walking, okay, on this quiet road. We had just come, the streets were all littered with water bottles, you know, police have cracked down, so everybody had fled. And we are all talking about it. And if memory serves, I was in front with somebody. Now, Marcus, think about it. The next thing we hear, is like, you're like, it's been a strange evening, so you don't know. Yeah. Then, well, we take about two steps, and then we hear, <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, to be fair, it's not the worst sound you've heard all evening, is it? <laughs> so, we're
3: checking the drain, and they come out He's it's, kissing, it's,
0: it's kissing the dreams, <laughs> and, and he and he missed w- w- one of the most extraordinary penalty shootouts I've ever ever witnessed. Well, just on TV, of course, uh, which was the final, of course. And, and don't worry, Gary, we're not going to talk about that game. We were here to talk about the semi-final, so we won't go over the uh, over the the Ivory Coast win. But all we'll say is that when all was said and done in Equatorial Guinea that year, it was Buba Barry who had the <laughs> final word. <laughs> As he often does. Um. My goodness. Well, Gary, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this game and and all the stuff off it. I mean, obviously the the stuff that happened off the field was unsavoury, but it was very very interesting indeed. And uh and Jonathan, your experiences in in Africa Cup of Nations is always priceless for my money. Um. But Gary, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the pod today absolute pleasure uh, for more stories like that do check out Uh but thank you again Gary thank you Jonathan and until next week ladies and gentlemen have a good one